Morning. Good to worship with you today. If you're new here, I uh, just want to say welcome. My name is Fred. I'm one of the pastors, and just thanks for coming and, and checking us out. Hope you enjoy the service today. In mind, let's turn to Matthew chapter 13 today. We are in this series going through our four core values as a church. And as uh, if you've been with us the past few weeks, the first of our core values is that we want to be a Bible-centered church. And so we actually spent two weeks on that one. And then last week, Pastor Greg talked to us about being a gospel-driven church and what that looks like. And today, I want to get into our third core value, which is to be a disciple-making church. Disciple-making church is, is an important value to us as you'll see as we go through the message today. And so I invite you to follow along in Matthew chapter 13. I'm gonna read verses three through nine, then jump down to 18 through 23. Let's read together. It says, then he told them many things in parables saying, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit, some a hundred, some 60 and some 30 times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears listen. If we skip down to verse 18, Jesus explains this parable that he told him, and he says, so listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. And the one sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root and it is short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word, who, do, who does produce fruit and yields some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times what was sown. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we look at your word, your life-giving word. I pray that you would give us ears that can hear. Just as Jesus mentioned in this parable, I pray that you give us hearts that are good soil and good ground, that when the seed of your word comes in, it would find a good place to grow and produce fruit. May our lives reflect this high priority of the gospels to make disciples. May we be a disciple-making church. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Well, this parable, this metaphor that Jesus uses tells the story of what it's like when the word of God comes and lands on our hearts. Different types of responses can be expected. But what's a little bit shocking is that of these four responses, only one of them is good. The other three end in failure. And so the question we should be asking ourselves is, how do we make sure we're the good ground? 
I want to be the one that produces fruit. I want to be the one that this, the word comes and it can grow and live for a long time and produce a harvest. Well, I believe the answer to that, the difference between the first three responses and the fourth response is the fourth response reflects the heart of a disciple. Disciples are the ones who end up producing fruit. And so our goal is not just to create a response to the gospel or to the word of God. Our goal is not just to to see people receive it initially with joy only to fall away later. Our goal is to make disciples who bear much fruit. And so we have to ask the question, what is a disciple? If you have the handout in front of you, the first set of blanks answers that question. What is a disciple? A disciple is a redeemed follower of Jesus. Being a disciple begins first and foremost with being redeemed, with being saved, with being born again, and then responding by becoming a follower of Jesus. We see an example of how discipleship begins here in Matthew chapter four. In Matthew chapter four, we read the story of Jesus calling his first disciples as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, it says in verse 18. He saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their, fa- their, and their father and followed him. Verse 23 says, now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. I include that last verse because after Jesus calls these men to come and to follow him and they respond, it's not, Jesus is not just recruiting hype men who are going to follow him around like some sort of entourage, cheering him on, celebrating what he has done. He's calling them to model for them what he wants them to do after his departure. And so he, he gathers these disciples, these followers, and then he begins to show them what ministry in the kingdom of God looks like. He goes into the synagogues to teach. He preaches the good news of the kingdom and he heals every disease and every sickness. Well, guess what the disciples are going to do? They're going to go into the cities and they're going to preach the good news of the kingdom and they're going to heal every disease and sickness. He has brought them in not just as fans, but as apprentices. He has brought them in to show them what it means to follow him. He's preparing them for ministry. It's incredible to stop and think that Jesus only actively ministered publicly for about three years on the earth, and then he was content to leave the earth and turn over the work of the ministry to his followers. But he only does this after spending substantial time training them and preparing them to do this work of the ministry. 
So disciples are redeemed followers of Jesus. Another way you can think of this, you'll see on your handout, is that disciples are people who are following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and are committed to the mission of Jesus. I hope you're starting to see a difference between the average person who identifies themselves as a Christian and a biblical picture. We're gonna keep looking at the distinctions or the differences between how the Bible describes discipleship and how we often view being a Christian uh, today, but you should begin to see these differences. Being a disciple is not just somebody who, who attends church services. Being a disciple is not just somebody who says that they are a Christian. Being a disciple is not even just somebody who believes in the gospel for salvation. To be a disciple means you are following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and committed to the mission of Jesus. What percentage of people who identify themselves as Christians today do you think actually fit that description of being disciples? They're following Jesus, they're being changed by Jesus, and they're committed to the mission of Jesus. Might be scary to think how few Christians actually fit this description of what it means to be a disciple. And so today I I wanna provoke us to, to commit ourselves to being true disciples. I don't want us to be content. Kyle, Kyle Eidelman made famous um, the language of fan versus follower. He wrote a book called Not a Fan. Uh, a lot of times it's out on our bookshelf. By the way, if you don't know, there's a couple of bookshelves in the back of the fellowship area. Uh, those are free books. You can take anything on there, read it, share it with somebody, bring it back if you want, doesn't matter. Those are just up for grabs. There's uh, good books on there. In fact, I completely restocked it this week with new titles, so feel free to check that out. But there's a book that's often out there called Not a Fan, where he says, Jesus has, basically says, Jesus has a lot of fans. He has a lot of people cheering him on. He has a, a lot of people that might agree with, with what he says, but he doesn't have a lot of followers. And we're called to be followers of Jesus. We are called to live lives that are radically different because of the gospel. That's the element of being changed by Jesus and being committed to the mission of Jesus so that we do the things that, that he wants us to do. Let me, let me say it this way. What is Jesus doing in your world? What's he doing in your community? What is he doing in your workplace? What is he doing in your family, and are you participating? What is his goal for your neighborhood? What is his goal for your family? And are you participating in the work that he desires to do? Well, if you wanna be a disciple, there's some things that you need to know. I wanna share, uh, uh, we're not gonna have a chance to go real deep into this today, but I wanna share with you the three components of discipleship. You'll see this on the handout. There are three different areas of discipleship that we need to tend to. These are things you need to pay attention to in your life if you're going to commit to being a disciple. The first is there's the component of knowledge. There are things you need to know. 
there, there's information you need to attain. If you are going to live as a disciple of Christ, then you, there's some learning to do. Just like anything in life, you're born into a world where the people around you speak a certain language and you have to learn that language. You have to attain that knowledge. You take a new job and there's things that they immediately want you to know. They're going to train you. They're going to teach you what it's going to take to fulfill your position. You join a sports team, you get a playbook or you get instruction from your coach. This is what we need you to do. Same thing is true of becoming a disciple of Christ. There's things you need to know. There's knowledge out there that you need to pursue. And that's one of the exciting things about the 365 Bible reading plan that so many of us are doing. I'm loving these conversations. Everywhere I, every, every service, every time we're together, people are talking about where they're at in the reading plan. They're talking about things they're learning. They're talking about things that they find odd. We're, it's just so exciting to see so many of you engaging with the Bible. The reason that's important is because we need to know God's word. There's a knowledge component to this. But, but to be a disciple is not purely an academic endeavor. To be a disciple, it's not just about what you know. There's more to it than that. That's one important component of discipleship, but there are others. Number two is character. What I mean by character is, maybe that's not the best word because I don't mean the worldly definition of character, like are you a person of integrity? That's part of following Christ, obviously. But by character, I mean this inner transformation, being renewed by the gospel, being renewed by the word of Christ, being, being created into a new person, this, this inward heart transformation that takes place. We said in our definition of, of what is a disciple, somebody being changed by Jesus, are you, do you look different as a result of Jesus coming into your life? Do you look different as a result of responding to the gospel and being given new life? You should. That's to be transformed. We should be constantly being transformed. Now, I don't wanna give you the impression that that always takes place really quickly and that you should, you should just be like, totally different week after week after week. That's not always the case. More often, it's a, it's a slow process of becoming more like Christ. But that's one of the components, an important component of discipleship is that we're being transformed. And then thirdly, the last component of discipleship is our actions. There's things to know. There's inner change to take place. And then there's work to do. There's just like literal, actual work, things you need to do, not in order to be saved, but in a response to your salvation. Not so that you can earn God's forgiveness, but because you have been gifted God's forgiveness and you have been invited into the work that he is doing. And so you see there in parentheses, perhaps an easier way to think of this or to remind yourself of this is that the three components of discipleship are our head, the knowledge, 
the information that we need, our hearts, the transformation that needs to take place in our hands, the work that we are called to do. This, most of this isn't easy. Probably the easy part is the knowledge part. But to be changed, to become a new person, to become more like Christ, that, that's difficult. That means discomfort. That, that means the pain of letting things go. That's a tough process at times. We don't always like the means by which God changes us and makes us more like Christ. And then the work. The work isn't always easy. It's not, it's not always what we want to do. But these are the three components of discipleship. It reminds me, though, of what Jesus said in Mark eight thirty four. He says, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Deny yourself. That means his will, not your will. That means his priorities for your life, not your priorities for your life. Take up your cross. Jesus, is, this is before Jesus went to the cross. We, we kind of like, we wear crosses around us as like a symbol of our faith. Nobody would have done that then. This was a method of execution. You don't see anybody with like a chain with like an electric chair or like a lethal injection machine around their neck, right? But this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, willingly lay down your life and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Does that sound easy? Doesn't sound easy, does it? But it's the most important work that can be done. It's not easy, but it's rewarding. It's not easy, but it's why you were created. It's not easy, but it is the greatest calling that human beings could ever respond to. This is the most important thing that we could make our lives about. Following Jesus as disciples. Following Jesus not as fans, but as those who are passionately committed to his mission. As he transforms us, we are living out our lives, doing what he has created us to do. It's not easy. But man, it's awesome. That's the way to live your life. So what keeps us from being disciples? What hinders us? You'll see this on the handout. Three things that hinder us from growing as disciples of Jesus. I wanna return to the parable of the sower to consider these three things because we have a, we have a threefold enemy. <laughs> we have, we're, in a, we're in a battle against three things. The first one is the devil. Not everybody talks about Satan. Anymore. Not everybody talks about the fact that we live in a spiritual world with a spiritual enemy. That doesn't mean it's not happening. 
It just means we're not talking about it. It seems uneducated to talk about such things. It's, it seems a little bit primitive. Nonetheless, it's the reality that we live in. When Jesus talks about the, the three responses to, or the three soils or the three grounds that the seed falls on that don't produce fruit, the first one he says, verse 19, when anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. Why does the, the one sown along the path not grow roots and produce fruit? Because it never has an opportunity to. The evil one comes and he snatches it away. When the, you better believe that any time the gospel is being preached, the devil is at work. He is the sworn enemy to the kingdom of Christ. He wants nothing more than to disrupt the work that God is doing to rescue, transform, and gather his people. Greg made that, what I think is just a fantastic video that he shared last week during the sermon that just gives this really clear presentation of the gospel. And then he shared it online and uh, there was this one guy that was really, really ticked off. <laughs> like really ticked off, which is always fun to see people mad at Greg. That's never, that's never, that's always enjoyable. But you're like, why? Why is this guy mad? We're just sharing the gospel. It's because we're in a spiritual battle. There are things unseen to our eyes that are happening that's not the only thing that keeps, that's not our only enemy. It's not the only thing that keeps or hinders us from growing as disciples. We also have to contend with the world. The second thing you'll see on the handout there. The world hinders us and keeps us from growing as disciples. You've probably noticed we do not live in a world that is conducive for spiritual growth. What, what I mean by that is you're gonna leave here today and probably 99.9% .9 of what goes on in your life over the next seven days is not going to encourage you towards these things, but rather distract or interfere or take you away from the importance of being a disciple of Christ. That's one of the reasons why it's so important that we gather together regularly is because there just, isn't, there just aren't a lot of other influences in our lives that are, that are encouraging us in these things. Jesus says in verse 20, and the, sown, this, and the one sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. That sounds positive, but he has no root and it is short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. We see this all the time. We see people might respond positively in this environment, but you go out into what's sort of descri described here as distress and persecution. You go out into the real world and now you have to live out the things that you responded to on Sunday morning and you realize, you know, the, 
this is kind of hard. I thought this might be easy. I thought this might be pleasant, and it's not. And so it's short-lived distress or persecution comes. I mean, think about that. Think about how, how much of, outside of this, coming together on Sunday morning, how much of your life is encouraging you to grow spiritually? What's gonna happen tomorrow? Is there anybody in your life tomorrow that's going to encourage you to grow spiritually? Is there anything about your schedule, about your day that is promoting this response of discipleship? For most of us, it's not much. For most of us, it's easy to to respond in here and then we go out into a world that is opposed to the gospel, if, even if not outright, subtly opposed to the gospel, and we find we're swimming upstream. You know, the thing about swimming upstream, it's, in, it's tiring. <laughs> it gets old. It's just easier to go with the flow. That's the influence of the world, and so we need to be aware of this We need to combat this. We need to have a plan for this. But it's not the only thing that hinders or keeps us from growing as disciples. The third thing is the flesh. The flesh is a a word that Paul often uses in his letters to refer to our sinful nature. We're taught that we are born as sinners with a nature that is in rebellion against God. Uh, we see that evidenced in the world that we live in. Uh, if you have children, uh, some children come out of the womb declaring their sinfulness from the very moment uh, that they come out. And others are deceptive. For a little while, they, it looks like they're just good human beings. For a little, they sleep well, they eat well, they're not real fussy, but you just wait. <laughs> it's coming. Their sinful little hearts are gonna show up sooner or later, and you'll have no doubt. We are born into this world broken. That's our, that is our natural self. But then when we respond to the gospel, when God grants faith to respond to the gospel, we become new people and we're given a new nature. But that new nature exists alongside of the old nature, at least in this life. And that that old nature referred to as the flesh is at war with this new nature. And we, we have to be sure that we are feeding the life of God that has been deposited within us and that we are starving the flesh. That's a difficult thing to do. Jesus says it this way. He says, now the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So what you have here is you have the seed that has sprouted. It's on adequate ground. It could live and produce fruit, but it's not the only thing growing there. This seed that is growing is growing alongside of what's, what's um, described here as thorns. And these thorns are competing with, that, with this seed, the seedling, 
for the nutrients and for the water and for the sunlight. And so you have this little seedling trying to grow and trying to reach up to the sun. And then you have these thorns that are surrounding it, choking it out. That's the effect of our flesh. When we allow our flesh to overcome what God has planted in us, we become unfruitful. So we have this, we have this battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's where I was going with this. It's a phrase you often hear uh, around Christians. We're fighting against the world and the flesh and the devil. And that sounds, that, that is bad news. It doesn't just sound like bad news. It is bad news. But the good news is, is that God in us is greater than all three combined, multiplied together, exponentially factored, whatever. God is greater. The life that is within us has the ability to conquer all three. The Bible says greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And I think that applies to all three of these. We need to have confidence that the life of God in us is strong enough. As long as we tend to it, it will grow and it will bear fruit. That is the process of discipleship. So we've talked just briefly about what discipleship is and some of the key components of discipleship and some of the things that, that get in the way of discipleship. Let me just end with talking about why we want to make disciples. See this on your handout. Why do we wanna make disciples? The answer is we want to rescue transform and gather God's people for God's glory. That's why we're doing this. We wanna rescue, transform, and gather God's people for God's glory. Discipleship always begins with, rescue, with people being rescued by the gospel, being rescued by the, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He came to rescue. And he also came to transform. The Christian life does not, does not begin and end with a response to the gospel. The Christian life, that, in the Christian life, that is but the beginning. When you respond to the gospel, you have just stepped into a vast world of, of growing as a disciple and responding on an ongoing basis to the gospel and to God's word and doing the work that he has created you to do. And so that's what we wanna do. We wanna rescue, transform, and gather God's people for God's glory. This is the purpose of all things that exist. To glorify God by rescuing, transforming, and gathering his people. The throne of God surrounded by those who have been saved by him, transformed into his likeness and gathered to him is the culmination of all human history. Where is this world going? Step outside of, of our brief little blip on the timeline of human history for a moment and consider where is everything going to to culminate and come together? What will be the end result 
of our existence in this world? Where is human history marching towards? John was given a glimpse that he tells us in Revelation chapter seven. He was given a glimpse into where all of human history is headed. He says in Revelation seven, verse nine, after this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. Verse 15 says, the one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Where are we headed? We are headed to that vast multitude of people who have been gathered from every nation, every tribe, among every, every people group on the earth who are being rescued and transformed and gathered before the throne of Christ. And we will worship him and he will rejoice over us and he will care for us and he will invite us into his eternal life. That's where we're going. So what do we do between now and then? We live as disciples. We discover what God is doing where we are at. I I posed that question earlier. What's God doing in your neighborhood, in your workplace? This is what he's doing. He's rescuing people through the gospel. He's transforming them into his likeness and he's gathering them to live with him together in eternity. And so if you're not doing that, if you're not doing that with him, if you're not doing your part to see to it that, he, that people are rescued by the gospel, transformed into his likeness, and eventually gathered together into eternity with him, then you're not doing what he's doing. You're not committed to his mission the way disciples ought to be. And so today I want to invite you to a a commitment. I want to invite you to, to commit to making your life chiefly centered around these important priorities. To do what Jesus is doing in your world. To join him on his mission to rescue, transform, and gather people for his glory. We say it often, but I feel like we haven't said it for a while. There's 150,000 people within 20 minutes of where you're sitting right now. The overwhelming majority of them do not know Jesus Christ as their savior. They have not been rescued. They are not being transformed and they will not be gathered into his presence. That's our mission. He has given us that work to do. Now, if you're asking me, that's a bad That's a bad strategy, (laughs) but he has invited us. (laughs) He had you and me, and we all have, we all have work to do in this mission. Don't expect the pastors to get it all done. 
that ain't gonna happen. We're not very good. (laughs) It's gonna take all of us to live as disciples. The greatest calling, the greatest invitation that has ever been given to man to follow Jesus and be a part of his mission to rescue, transform, and gather people for his glory for all of eternity. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we can't do this on our own. We desperately need your Holy Spirit to ignite within us a passion for serving you, to ignite within us a passion to see your will be done. We are daily contending with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We get lazy, we get self-absorbed, we get apathetic towards the things that are really important. We succumb to the pressure of our world to just live a normal life. We need your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Transform us. Make us missionaries where we live right now. Make us disciples. May we be passionate followers of Christ day in and day out for your glory. Use us to build your kingdom, we ask in Jesus' name.